You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. If you're like me, there's a chance you had either at the forefront of your mind or maybe in the back of your mind this week, you had a question arise. And this is the question. Why does conflict always seem to follow me? Why does conflict always seem to follow me? Even if it's in the midst, why do I get frustrated over mundane, stupid things? Why is there conflict there? Why do I argue? Why do I have to constantly fight down my anger? And why do I so often give in to it? Why does conflict seem to follow me? And we began to look at conflict last week. I'm sure some of you, when we got to that sermon, Grappling Match Part 1, you wanted a five-step program on these are the five things I can do in this order. And if I do this, conflict will no longer exist in my life. And if I'm honest, I wanted that sermon too. Because I just want steps. I want a program. I want an app, right? I want an app for my heart to deal with conflict so it can be removed from my life. But it's not how it works. Because you see, the grappling match that is referred to when we deal with conflict isn't between us and other people. It's the grappling match that is constantly at war within our hearts between the spirit and the flesh. The grappling match that exists starts here before it ever spills out anywhere else. And so if we want to deal with the conflict that exists outside ourselves, we have to begin to first deal with the conflict that resides within our very hearts. Two kingdoms are always at war within the human soul. And that's the reason that conflict seems to follow us. It's because we're the source of it. So why does conflict exist in the church? Why does conflict exist in the church? It's because you attend church. That's why conflict exists. Now, I once saw a church that had no conflict. Now, this is a true story. And I know some of you are going to be like, this can't be a true story. But it's one of those stories that's like, it is true and you got to laugh at it because it is true. So I was at a conference in Atlanta. And we're driving. We're just trying to kill time. And we get to a strip mall. And there's a big sign outside the strip mall that says, Perfect Church. Who's the name of the church? In all seriousness, one, I can't imagine being part of that church plant committee. And as you're like bouncing around names around the table, they're like, oh, I know. Perfect church. Because we're going to be the perfect one. Right? That's some high expectations. Right? So I, being a new believer at the time, well, a younger believer at the time, I get excited. We have found the perfect church, ladies and gentlemen. So we turn the corner, and I want to see where it is in the strip mall that we find the perfect church, the perfect church that has no conflict, in which it is peace the moment you enter the building. And sure enough, I saw the perfect church sign. Well, what was left of it? Because there were pieces of wood that covered the windows, and the doors had a big lock on it. 
See, the perfect church, even when you try to make it, doesn't exist. You see, because we're the source of the conflict. We are. When we enter the church on Sundays, the reason there's conflict is because we're here. So how do we, in turn, order our lives in such a way that we can begin to remove conflict? How do we order our lives in such a way in which we begin to remove conflict? One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he has a quote that has always stuck with me, and it's this. When you put first things first, second things are increased. They're not decreased. When we put first things first, second things are not Second things are increased. They're not decreased. You see, we've spent the whole summer talking about what is the church, and we're going to end up spending this whole entire month talking about what love is, what conflict is, and next week what forgiveness is within the church, because these are marks of a church. And I hope today we begin to see that clearly, that we love best when first things are first. And when we fall into conflict... It's because certain things are out of order in our lives. First things are no longer first. To take the silly example from last week with the steak dinner and my wife on my anniversary, right? The steak had become a first thing over my wife when it should have been like a sixth or seventh thing, right? And my wife should have been a a first thing when it's our, our, our anniversary, right? But the steak had become more important. It was out of order. When we were in Texas, at least it could be a third thing because you saw your steak on the way in. You see, when we want to love comfort and pleasure more than God, something's out of order. You can even argue that when I make second things first things, we fail to love completely. But let's review, right? This is part really three of this kind of mini part within the church. And that is this. If I turn it on, I can move it, right? And that is this. Love. What is love? We talked about that two weeks ago. Love is commitment. God says to Moses in the wilderness, I will be their God and they will be my people. God's in. He wants his people. Next, love is to be with. It's to be committed and it's to be with. You don't get married and then move into different homes. And then when you go to a party as a married couple, you don't leave the same place, take two different cars just to arrive at the same place and go to the same party, right? As married couples, we don't plan for two separate retirements. We're with one another. It's the underlying assumption. And then love goes a step further. It's not just committed to, and it's not just with somebody, but love is a position of advocacy, This is so important when we deal with conflict, right? Because much conflict exists when one party is no longer for another. Or at least it seems that way. And when thinking about conflict and relationships, it's when we get the order out of sync again. I'm no longer for you, to use that silly analogy with my wife, because I am more for my stake. I'm no longer for you. I'm not willing to sacrifice for you because... That would be uncomfortable, and I want other things that make me happy. They get out of order. Our relationship has passed the desire to be an advocate. And lastly, love is directional. It's an untuness, right? I have directed my life to be committed with and for the other person. 
And with that in mind, we moved to deal with conflict last week, knowing those things. This week we'll finish this section. But I want to remind you of the points that we had last week. First, conflict is inevitable. We know this, AJ. We've been in the world for two seconds. We can't escape it. But it's worse than that. Conflict exists most often with the people you're closest to. So the longer you hang around somebody, the more likely you're going to be in conflict with them. I was thinking about this phrase this week. It's said in movies and TV shows all the time, right? Especially those Hallmark stuff, right? Distance makes the heart grow fonder. You know why that is? Because you're not around them to argue anymore. You can't have conflict if you're not with somebody. You know who I don't have conflict with? Gavin Newsom. You know who that is? Governor of California. You know why I don't have conflict with him? Because I don't live in California. He's way out there on the left west coast, right? I don't got any issues. The longer you hang out with somebody, the more likely you're probably going to have conflict. Second, conflict is for our good. If the goal of the Christian life is to love like Jesus, how did Jesus love? Did he love people that were already for him and devoted? No, he loved people in open rebellion against him. And then he pursued people in open rebellion against him. And he came towards people in open rebellion against him. You could say open rebellion and maybe insert conflict against him in there. He pursued a people in conflict with themselves. The reason, one of the reasons God gives you conflict in your life is so that you can begin to love more like Jesus. The conflict that exists, the enmity that exists between people we, that loathe each other, that exists for you to lean into the Spirit of God that dwells within you, if you're a Christian, and be empowered to love the same way He loves. The conflict is for your good. It is for your righteousness. And after landing in those places, we began to look at James 4, 1 through 10. And we had two questions that popped up in the midst of it. The first question was this. Why do we fight with one another? And the Bible is clear on this. We fight because we're in sin. Even those that are in Christ still wrestle with sin. So much so that everything we do is tainted with sin. I love this analogy. Sin, if sin is the color blue, we just don't sometimes engage in blue. Everything we do at some level is tainted with blue. It's like glitter, okay? When I came, when I started children's ministry at my last church, I started it from the scratch. My number one rule, number number one rule, no glitter. That's post-fall stuff right there. All right, if they open glitter in the nursery today, within two weeks, it's going to somehow make it onto this podium. It gets everywhere. It's awful. So like with our sin, it's like glitter. You can't contain it. We are driven by selfish desires. We talked about six of those last week. Power, control, acceptance, recognition, comfort, and pleasure. When those things become first things and supersede our relationship with others and our relationship with God, conflict occurs every time. 
The second question was, what has become more important to me than my relationship with God? Now, this is a great source of conflict. It's a great source of conflict. And what is so scary about this, and I didn't get to touch on this last week, so I'm going to touch on it this week, is that many good things, many good things can take precedent here. My children can become more important to me than my God. My wife can become more important to me than my God. My job can become more important to me than God. My reputation can become more important to me than my God. And in all those things, in all those good things, I commit spiritual adultery. But back to the C.S. Lewis quote. When you put first things first, second things are increased, not decreased. When you put first things first, second things are increased, not decreased. Hear me. I love my wife best when my love for God is in the right place above her. I love my children best when my cup is so overflowed with the love that I have found in God that it spills out to them. I do my job best, even when it was in the restaurant business and construction, when I am doing it to the glory of God and not to build my own reputation within the community. When first things are first, second things are actually increased, not decreased. Yet I put second things first all the time. When I do, conflict appears. So let's continue our journey through James 4, 1 through 10. Stand with me as we read it this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose, this is the new part we're going to cover this week, or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the most devastating things that can happen in an intimate relationship is when one party abandons the other. And not only abandons the intimacy of their relationships, but substitutes that intimacy with intimacy with another. This is most profoundly displayed, of course, in the act of marital adultery. 
when one person had made vows before witnesses, not only reneges on their vows, but imparts that intimacy of those vows to another person. While I've never experienced this within my own personal family, I have had to counsel so many young men and women who have watched their parents go through this. And there are such deep wounds. As you can imagine, the person who was cheated on was deeply hurt. Trust was broken, and there was anger, justified anger. What makes that anger justified? Because a promise has been broken. That's what justifies it. Not just between two parties, but between those two parties and God. And think about it this way. The anger actually says something about the relationship. Right? Why are they angry? Because the relationship was important to them. Can you imagine the flip side of it? When a spouse is cheated on, and instead of responding with anger, they just respond with, it's okay. It's no big deal. They'll do what they do. What does that say about the relationship? They have abandoned the relationship in their heart long before the infidelity has occurred. In verse 4, James has made clear to us that we are an adulterous people who have traded in a relationship with God with a relationship with the world. What would it say about God's love for us if he just responded with, it's okay. It's no big deal. They're going to do what they want. Can you imagine if that's how God felt about his beloved? About you and I? He would say a lot about how he views our relationship, right? But beloved, we have a God who does not do that. This is not the case at all. Let's look at James 4, 5 through 6. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Question three that we're going to wrestle with this morning is this. What does God do with people who forsake him for something else? What does God do with people who forsake him for something else? People don't like the jealous adjective attached to God for some reason in our culture. I think some of it is because there's so much negative connotation around the idea of jealousy. But jealousy is only wrong when you are jealous for something that isn't yours. When something is yours, you can be jealous for it. So much so that you could be zealous for it. You see, God, in his mercy is jealous for his creation. He is jealous for his bride. If you are in Christ, he is jealous for you. And God will do whatever it takes to regain the affections of your heart. Not because he needs us. He does it because he loves us. When he pursues us, and we humble ourselves in return and return to him, he just pours out more grace. He longs to give you grace, even in the midst of our spiritual adultery. And you know what the main vehicle is that God uses to regain our affection? 
tends to be other people. This is one of the blessings of conflict. Paul Tripp puts it this way. God uses other people to mysteriously and counterintuitively rescue us from self-glory and self-love. God uses other people to mysteriously and counterintuitively rescue us from self-glory and self-love. Other people remind us that our reputation need not be our focus. Other people remind us all the time that we're not in control. Other people remind us that we're not in power. Other people remind us that to seek pleasure outside of God is to make pleasure God. And God, in his grace, uses conflict, typically with another person, to reveal our adulterous hearts and to reveal his grace that meets us there. God is not wagging his finger at you. Some of you have this image of a very old man in really white robes that every time you make a mistake, he's going, no, 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 no. Like, he's not Mikembe Matumbo, okay? That's a deep cut for you basketball fans. That's it. That is not your God wagging a finger at you when you make second, third, and fourth things first things. If you are in Christ, as the song said this morning, he is working all things together for your good and for your return to him. And conflict is one of the main ways he does this. He desires for you to grow in relation to him. And that takes humbling yourself and seeing God for who he is. He is a redeemer. He is a savior. Hear me, church. Hear this. Not just from something, sin, but to something, himself. God is not just a savior from something, sin, but he is a savior to something, himself. Love is directional again. Don't miss that. Question four. Once we, are, once we are rescued, what should we do? And the answer is found in the remainder of James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what? He will exalt you. Submitting yourself to God for many of us will be the hardest thing that we will ever do in our lives. Unless maybe you were like me and you've been fighting that battle so long and you know it's a losing battle. Sword is broken somewhere on the coffee table and the armor is all dinked up. That submission came at a cost, but it was much easier. But for some of you, submitting to God will be the hardest thing you ever do. While at the same time, it will be the most joyous journey you will ever take. I got my minor in history. Um, You know how you think back in your life and you're like, if I could go back and change one thing, right? I probably would have got my major in history. If you ever see me at a Barnes and Nobles, that's probably the area I'm in. I love the history section. My favorite, one of my favorite parts of history to study is the medieval ages, Renaissance period. 
Um, it's beautiful, right? I love it. King Arthur, that, that huge thing by Arthur Conan Doyle is still one of my favorite works. Um, I just love that time period, right? And we tend to glorify much of it. We have Renaissance fairs. We eat big turkey legs. Right? Sometimes we go on vacation, you see that huge place that does jousting, and you spend way too much money to see grown men throw lances at each other from horseback. We love that time period. Why? Because there's lords and ladies, kings and queens, knights, chivalry. And that's the beautiful part of the period. But... (laughs) You, you, you start studying it, you see like the really messy side, right? The number of assassination attempts between these people is super, super high. They came up with very clever ways to kill one another. The number of backstabbing within families so that one person can get more power than the other, all over. If you just want to see this displayed in micro, read 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Those people try to kill each other all the time. That's the medieval period. Constant wars between constant, constant, countless kingdoms. Plagues, death. And while we think we have moved past much of that, we have not. We set up our own little kingdoms, don't we? We set up our own little kingdoms. Our council members that sit around the dinner table with us, we like to make sure that every part of the kingdom's in control, right? We have feasts, not just for holidays. We just do it for fun, right? Big feasts. And then we don't do jousting anymore. There's much too much blood. But we get big televisions, They get bigger every year. And we put them in our courtyards, right? And we watch the jousting of the day unfold on screen. We love our pleasure as kings of our castle. And we make sure people we don't like, we put up walls. And we make sure the fashions of our closets match the fashions of the other kingdoms so we can fit in. We all have our little kingdoms. All of us. And this is what the American gospel offers us, if you remember back from earlier this summer. This is what the divine commodity offers us in many churches in America. They knock on your doors to your castle. Hello. From the church down the street. Do you have any problems? Yeah, of course I got a problem. I'm human. Who doesn't have problems? Would you like someone to fix it for you? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, are you off for it? I'd love that. How much is it going to cost, right? I'm an American. I know there's always a cost. No, it's free. You know, and this is, they're, they're true about this, right? Guy named Jesus, he's paid the cost. Would you like to receive Jesus into your life? Repent of your sin and, and he can live in your life and you can have eternal life. And all you got to do is you got to take one of these flags. I brought one with me. And you just got to put it up on one of the towers of your little castle. It doesn't even have to be the highest tower. It's just got to be there. Let everyone else know that you like King Jesus. 
That is not the gospel. The gospel is so much greater than that. The gospel offers more than just that. The Bible states clearly that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 10, 7. God knocks on the door of your castle and says, look, you got a problem. Sin. It's pervasive. It's all over the castle. It's in every crack that you own. It's in the tapestries. And even worse, it's in the very king and queen that reside in it. You got to do something about it. But I got a solution. The high king from the kingdom across the country, he's paid the penalty. And if you repent of your sin and you submit yourself to King Jesus and you become part of his kingdom and you let him rule in your castle, then your sins will be forgiven and joy will abound. King Jesus has paid the penalty for your disobedience, for your own kingdom building, as we were in rebellion against him. Repent and believe the gospel. But there's more. If you become part of the kingdom, you are now adopted as a child of the king. And so not only do you become part of his kingdom, you have the very king's ear. So when you walk into the throne room, he treats you like a child and desires to hear what you have to say to him. There's the major difference, though. The American gospel tells you that there is nothing else that you have to give up. Come as you are. But the gospel of the church says, die to self, become a new creation, live differently. It says this, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And to Americans, you don't just claim independence, right? We declare independence. Independence, our own kingdoms, our own autonomy is so at the core of who we are as people that to be told to submit to someone rubs up against the very essence of who we are as a people. We do independence better than anybody else in the world. But it is in the process of humbling ourselves that we find true freedom. That we find peace that God offers us. Matthew 18. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. Children submit to their parents. And I know even nowadays in our, our woke culture, even that's under attack, right? But when children submit to good parents, good things happen. All the data shows that. It's like the data reflects the Bible. Shocking. But you as a child of a good king, how could he not work all things together for your good even using conflict. James 4 continues, it's so wonderful, right? When you submit to the King Jesus, he gives you the power, he gives you the tools to live kingdom-minded and kingdom-fulfilled. And that's what makes the rest of James 4 so wonderful. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Resist the devil. Prior to Christ, we had no reason to resist the devil. The devil was actually funding the whole operation in our castles. You do realize that. Whole thing. He supported it. But with Christ, we can actually engage in spiritual warfare. You have the power to resist the devil, so much so that the devil will flee from you. Some of you think that if you're a Christian, when you get up in the morning, the devil and his minions are like wringing their hands, all like, ooh, it's time to get to work. We can't wait to throw you know, a stone in their shoes and make their lives miserable. My prayer for me and on really all of you is that when our feet hit the floor in the morning, the devil and his minions are going, they're up! What are we going to do? Batten down the hedges, hatches, double the battle lines because they're going to be at war because they serve the high king. We need not flee the devil if we're in Christ because he's given us the power to engage him and to call one another to that same battle. And the God of that battle doesn't leave us alone. It's actually like he loves us. Look at the language here. The God of the universe, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, invites us into his council chambers, his kingly chambers. And we don't, we don't even have to get all the way to the foot of the throne before he meets us. We head in thinking, I'm sure that we got to, we got to, be ready to approach the king, but no, as we enter the room as his children, he's getting down off his throne and he's moving towards us. He's excited to see us as his children. He wants to be with us and move in the same direction for us and fight our battles with us. He draws near. How crazy is that? No other God in all of antiquity draws near to his people. The God of Islam, submit. And if you don't like what happens in life, yeah, on you. Hindu gods, don't get me started. But our God draws near. That's crazy. Don't miss that. Verse 9 and 10 are intertwined here. God does not call us to forever sadness and lack of joy. Here he's referring to the humility, right? We humble ourselves when we rightly see our sin for what it is, and we rightly see our God for who he is. And when that happens, we can weep, we can mourn, we can wallow, and that we are unable to run our own kingdoms effectively. We can't. We stink at it. We're awful kings and queens. Everyone in here. We're just bad at it. You can think you're good at it, right? Especially in today's culture, we can get enough ribbons and, you know, little markers to make ourselves feel happy about ourselves. How many likes did you get today on your social media feed? We're not good at running our kingdoms. We need the high king to come and rule in our lives. And when we do that, we are exalted. Higher than we would have ever been if we had not joined ourselves to his kingdom. 
When Jesus becomes the first thing in your life, second things are elevated, not diminished. In the church, conflict most often exists when someone is more concerned about their kingdom than God's. This is the most common type of conflict you find in the church. It's someone saying something offensive about your kingdom, your reputation, your control, and our response is, I must wage war on their kingdom. Instead of bringing that conflict to the high king, both parties fail to fall under submission to Jesus. Matthew 18 lays out what conflict resolution looks like in the church. If someone sins against you, were to go to them. If they don't see what they've done, if they don't see that they've hurt you, you are to bring another witness. All of this is done in love. All of this is done in being their advocate and wanting them to submit to the king. And then if that doesn't happen, you come to me, you come to the elders, and as your over-shepherds, we're in charge of helping resolve conflict. That's one of our roles that's spelled out clearly. Titus, Timothy. We're to help with that. But we must always ask ourselves, whose kingdom are we going to war for? Now, there are conflicts within the church where both parties are concerned about the kingdom of God. Please don't hear that that doesn't exist. But they just have wildly different interpretations of how best to display the kingdom. And those are some of the best conflicts. I love those conflicts because we get to talk about the best way to love our God and love our community. My first Presbytery meeting, former Presbyterians in here, you'll get this, okay? So first first Presbytery meeting I ever attended, it's all the churches in our area, and we get together, and we sing, and we worship, and then we talk about the issues of the day. Well, it's my first one, and the issue of the day that was brought up is intinction, okay? Intinction is when you take the bread and the wine, and you dip the bread in the wine, and some people help do. That's not what's given in Scripture, so we shouldn't do that, and some people were like, no, we're free to do that, we have the liberty to do that. And so me being a new church person, I'm like, this is the dumbest, right? We're, we're really arguing about this, right? But if it's a Presbyterian meeting, so you have a mic and you have guys that are going up there and making an argument in the case for one another. And it gets heated to the point where I am very uncomfortable with this conflict right now, right? I mean, they're going back and forth for probably a half hour, very invigorated. And they're both seeking the kingdom of God. And they're both using scripture to support their positions. And it gets done. We vote like good Presbyterians. And at the end of it, it's over. I'm like done sweating, right? I've done nothing but just sit there. And I'm sitting kind of where you're sitting, right? And they both, the two opposing parties, come stand right next to me. Look, I thought I was sweating before. I'm like, do I, am I going to have to break this up? It is my first Presbyterian meeting. I'm going to have to break up a fight. I'm going to be a referee. Now, I've worked with teenagers. This is not my first rodeo. I can do it. But like, I'm, I'm nervous. And then the one guy goes up and he says, hey, we're hanging out after this, right? We're hanging out together right after this meeting. He goes, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we? I'm like, Why could they do that? Because they weren't fighting for their own kingdoms. They were fighting for the kingdom of God. And unity surpassed that. They were more worried about 
making Christ beautiful than they were making their own distinction on a specific small portion of our theology. It was beautiful. Unity was treasured because Christ was treasured. They both, even though they fought, they desired to be under unity of King Jesus. First things were first. Second things were second. We see this posture take place when we live under King Jesus best in Colossians 3. I love this passage, and I need, I turn here a lot, y'all. Okay, if you want to hear, see your pastor's sin, you can be like, okay, yeah, he needs this. Okay? Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Ooh. Lord, give me that. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of God... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Submitting to the command to handle conflict in the name of Jesus is a hard thing. I will not deny that. But it is the path of peace that we so long for, where Christ is king and we are not. George MacDonald once gave a parable. I'm, I'm adjusting it to fit an earlier analogy, but this is what he said. Imagine yourself living in a castle. God comes in to reign. You become part of his kingdom, and then he starts making changes to your castle. At first, you understand what he's doing, right? He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof. He's slaying that dragon you know you had left over in that tower. You know, jobs that you know needed to get done. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the castle around in ways that hurt you at your very core. And it doesn't make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different castle than the one you had thought of. He's throwing a new wing on here. He's putting up an extra floor there. He's running up new towers. He's making new courtyards. You thought you were going to own a nice little modest castle. But God is building a grand palace. And he intends to come and live in it. God loves you unconditionally. He wants you to submit first to him when conflict arises. And when we do this, you'll be shocked at how much conflict that alone begins to remove. And next week, he's going to ask you to forgive as he's forgiven you. Know that that's coming. Not because he desires to see you in pain, but he desires for peace, for shalom to reign in your hearts. For he himself is shalom. He himself is peace. If you have never submitted your lives to King Jesus, I'm knocking at your door today. Jesus desires you, and therefore he desires your kingdom. He wants you to stop keeping him out. 
Stop putting up walls and stop waging wars against him. He wants you to repent and submit to him. Not because it is for his good, but because it's for yours. And your sin has blinded you from seeing it. I ask that the Spirit of God remove that blindness this very moment. That you would see your sin for what it is. And that you would see your God for who He is. He's a wonderful Savior and King. Call on Him for salvation today. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess Him today as Lord before it's too late. And may we all hail the King.